This is a Triple J podcast. Imagine this. You're just a small-time indie band and you record a song using some free audio software. But now, the software company wants to charge you every time someone listens to your song. That's kind of what's happening at the moment in the gaming world and it's really controversial. Hello. Also, I'm Joe Lauder. This is a Hack Podcast. You're going to hear about that game engine drama that is blowing up at the moment. And stick around because we're going to find out why young people from migrant communities are playing a critical role with the referendum. First, though, a really interesting chat about a controversial powwow that's going down in Russia at the moment. Hack. A warm embrace. Two leaders increasingly isolated on the world stage. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un having a rare meeting today with Vladimir Putin in Russia. It's not the first time they've met, but this time it's specifically important for both countries. On Triple J. Yeah, when two controversial world leaders, some people would say dictators, meet in something called a cosmodrome, it's pretty obvious that the whole world is going to be watching what happens. Russian leader Vladimir Putin and the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un are currently holding a meeting that's been described by some experts as desperate. That's because they both really want what the other leader has. In Russia's case, it's believed that Putin is trying to get more weapons for his war in Ukraine. So how worried should we all be about this? Matthew Sussex is an associate professor at the Griffith Asia Institute, and he's here with me now. Matthew, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks so much for having me. Matthew, when two secretive dictators meet up, obviously it gets the whole world's attention, as this meeting has done. Is this a case of my enemy's enemy is my friend with these two meeting together? Oh, look, to some extent. But, um, you know, the the North Koreans and the the Russians have fairly extensive ties um, that date back to the the days of the Soviet Union. Um, There was a time when the USSR was the the chief provider of military aid and and food aid um, to North Korea. Uh, It's only been more recently that China's sort of taken on that mantle. So I think in many respects, both Kim Jong-un and and Vladimir Putin kind of see the world in a slightly similar way. And and that's the, the, the main thing they're opposed to is what they see as, you know, American hegemony, American imperialism, call it what you like. Um, but uh, this has also sort of got a practical side too, and it's a, a marriage of convenience. You know, there's things that North Koreans want out of the Russians, and uh, there's things that the Russians want out of the North Koreans, principally artillery ammunition. Just a bit more on that. So is that the main focus of what Vladimir Putin wants to get out of this meeting? I want to read you this statement from the US Secretary of State spokesman. This is about Putin making this meeting. The quote says... Having to travel across the length of his own country to meet with an international pariah to ask for assistance in a war that he expected to win in the opening month, I would characterise it as him begging for assistance. Is that what what's going on here? Yeah, look, I think that um, Kim Jong-un, for you know the first time in a long time, has the upper hand in negotiations with, uh, with with an overseas head of state, in this case, Vladimir Putin. Yeah, the Russians uh, are desperately short of um, artillery ammunition. Uh, that's what happens when you fire 12 million shells at the Ukrainians in 2022. And even though they've been a bit more circumspect this year, probably about 7 to 8 million this year, uh, they can only produce 2.5 million a year. So um, there, there's a massive shortfall they need to make up. 
Uh, and although they can't, they can get some of that from Iran, uh, which has been supplying them with uh, with uh, artillery rounds as well as drones. Um, North Korea has uh, you know, extensive abilities to manufacture the stuff. It's got big military stockpiles, uh, and most importantly, uh, all of its military kit comes, you know, from one way or the other from basically Russian stock. So, uh, so it fits Russian armaments. And how much will this change the situation in Ukraine if they do get restocked from North Korea? If it isn't already happening, because I will say that some um, Ukrainian officials came out and said that they think that this is already going on. That's right. This has been rumoured for a while that North Korean artillery shells have been used by the uh, by the Russians, and uh, this would be uh, you know probably more comprehensive deal to make sure that it uh, continues to flow in in big numbers. Um, look, I don't think it's going to be decisive in terms of the the war in Ukraine, but uh, you know the fact of the matter is, the more artillery shells uh, make their way into Russian hands that they can use at the front. Frankly, the more Ukrainians are going to die as a result of this. Uh, I think it'll probably have the possibility of you know holding up to some extent the Ukrainian counteroffensive that they've been embarking on for the last few months. Um, but ultimately, it's it's not going to play the um, the number one role, uh, although although it's something that certainly the Ukrainians don't want to see. If this does happen, if North Korea is providing weapons to um, to Russia, is that allowed under under international laws and agreements? Uh, no, it's absolutely not allowed uh, because Russia is a participant in the UN Security Council's sanctions regime against North Korea due to its nuclear program, uh, and that includes uh, the sale or transfer of any uh, weapons. Um, or weapons technology that includes things that are sort of dual use. Now, you know, the, the rhetoric coming out of the meeting is that, uh, you know, Russia is going to help with the North Korean space program. Let's face it, uh, a rocket that goes up into space is exactly the same as an intercontinental ballistic missile. Um, so this is a, a clear violation of, uh, of international law. Um, and it's also, unfortunately, rehabilitating a, a rogue state that has no respect for, for laws or norms in our own region. I was going to ask what Kim Jong-un would get out of this and what North Korea gets out of out of this meeting, potentially. Um, yeah, well, there's some prosaic things North Korea wants, which is uh, money and food, uh, and it'll get those things. But more than likely, it'll also get uh, Russian help with uh, with its rocket program. And um, the fact that uh, the meeting was held at a cosmodrome is obviously no coincidence in terms of signalling what was going on here. Um, and, and that's a real worry, um, mainly because North Korea not only wants to develop long-range missiles that it can put nuclear warheads on, but it uh, wants to stick them in a variety of different places, including uh, on submarines um, and including uh, potentially in space as well. Um, so, so this is a really, really worrying development. And what about people in the Asia Pacific region, including Australia? Like, do people and other nations have reason to be concerned about all of this? Yeah, well, look, you know, if you're South Korean, you wouldn't be uh, too happy about it, and certainly if you're Japanese as well. Given that North Korea has, you know, repeatedly hinted that uh, if war broke out on the Korean Peninsula, it would nuke Japan. Um, so, yeah, the Japanese would be uh, would be very concerned. I think more broadly, you know, in Australia, uh, we need to be you know, really worried about um, this sort of de facto alliance that's now been uh, now come about between the Russians 
and the North Koreans because it'll allow, it'll allow Pyongyang to, to modernise their military quite a lot um, and allow them to do a lot of nasty things that previously uh, they were being curtailed from doing. Matthew, it's great to get your analysis. Thank you so much for coming on Hack. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me. Matthew Sussex is an associate professor at the Griffith Asia Institute. Hack. We might no longer be able to play some of our favourite games based on a decision made by game development platform Unity. On Triple J. Hello, I'm Joe Lauder. If you've just tuned in, this is Hack on Triple J. I'm hanging out with you all this week. There's a major controversy that's blowing up at the moment in the gaming world, and it could have consequences for everyone who games. Basically, Unity is a company that provides a really popular engine for free for game developers to build games with. But now they want to charge the developers a small fee every time someone installs a game if it was built with their software. The company says they need more share of the pie that comes from really popular games, but the developers are really worried about this extra cost. Hacks gaming expert Nathan Nikidula is here to break it down for us. Nathan, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Joe. Nathan, can you just start by telling me what Unity is and what an engine is in the gaming world? So Unity is a video game engine, and basically what that is is a software that people use to make video games. It's actually the second most used engine in the world because it's kind of known for being like free and easily accessible. And like it's, it's huge. Some of the biggest games in the world are made with Unity, but the bulk of the people using it are kind of like hobbyists, you know, they're indie developers, they're students, or they're up-and-coming animators. Right, so anybody can, with an interest in gaming, could use this. Absolutely. I jumped on it when I was in high school. I just played around with it. I made a video game in, like, year 10 for, like, a school assignment. I think I got an A. Oh, my God. I'm sure you got an A. What was it? Can I ask what it was about? Yeah, it was like a racing game. It was like the most broken piece of media that you'll probably ever see. The car would, like, clip through the ground. But you know what? (laughs) We made it. So the engine kind of underpins everything in the game for these, and anybody, like you said, anybody can technically use it. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of like a Photoshop for making games. So it gives you all the tools to kind of like build the ground and like animate the characters and have them interact with stuff. And so what's happened with Unity and why are game developers so frustrated with this company at the moment? Why is there so much outrage? Well, basically, if you made a game with Unity and it's doing well, Unity has come out with this new type of fee where they're going to start charging you every time someone downloads it. So it's different depending on which version of Unity you have. But if you have the free version, you'll get charged like 30 cents per download once your game becomes popular enough, which is like crazy to think about. It's kind of like if you made a song using like a recording software And then every time someone downloaded that song, the recording software was like, hey, we're going to charge you for that. Unity says it's to help fund the development of its technology, but it's left a lot of indie developers who've been working on games for years with a bunch of potential new costs. Yeah, is that why they're so annoyed? And what have they, what have the game developers been saying about this? Oh, well, it's like it's exploding on Twitter. Like a lot of people are really worried about this change. We've got Henry Hoffman. His game won a BAFTA and he tweeted, if you buy our game, please don't install it because he's worried about all the the different fees that are going to come out of it. Um, And here in Australia, we have um, Sanita. He's a designer from Brisbane. And he's asking, do I just rebuild my whole game in a different engine? I spent a small fortune on pro licenses to develop the game over several years. Seems kind of insane that Unity can just throw this out there on a whim. It's kind of left a lot of developers who, 
you know, have spent years with like this idea of how they're going to roll out their game with like all these new costs. And I think one of the biggest examples was from a company called Inner Sloth. So they had a super viral game called Among Us. It was huge in the pandemic. It was the number one most downloaded game and it's currently sitting at 5 million downloads. But the way that that team started out, they only had five developers. So they were like super indie. And if this fee had been there, they might have not had the same success that they did. So they tweeted Unity. They're telling them to stop it. This would not only harm us, but fellow game studios of all budgets and all sizes. Do bigger studios have their own engines and they no longer have to rely on free ones like this? Yes. It depends on the studio. A lot of big studios actually still use Unity and they'll continue to get charged as this fee goes on. But like for some of the bigger game companies, like the one that owns Fortnite, sorry, Epic Games, they have their own engines that they develop, which are extremely costly. And they're open to the public too, but they cost quite a lot. Yeah, I'm just wondering what this would mean for game developers. Like, are some of them going to reconsider making their games on Unity altogether because of these extra costs? For actually the majority of game developers, it'll be business as usual. Like the vice president of Unity came out and he estimated that only 10% of developers who use the engine will actually be affected by this. Nathan, I'm really interested in what Unity has said about this because they've said it's about essentially kind of, I think they called it a value share. From their side, are there some legitimate concerns that they don't get enough money or make enough money back from developers who build really successful games that are underpinned and made with their engine? Absolutely. So in May, Unity actually laid off 600 staff members, which is about 8% of their workforce. And in June, they recorded a net loss of $193 million. So it makes sense that they try to add this fee in on top of their existing subscriptions. They do have subscriptions, which like helps generate revenue in that way. But uh, a lot of people use this engine and they don't get quite a lot back from it. And it sounds like the concern could be that this could become more widespread in the industry. Yes, well, a lot of other game engines already have similar fees, or sometimes they have like a higher upfront fee for like when you buy the engine. I think one of the reasons the backlash has been so vocal was because they changed the pricing on developers who were midway through making a game. So it's not something they could have planned for. It was like an extra fee that they added on. Nathan, it's so fascinating. I'm sure it's not the last we'll hear of this. Um, Love talking to you about gaming. Thanks so much. Thanks, Joe. That's Nathan Nigidula. He's a hack reporter. You probably know the voice, but turns out he's also a bedroom game developer from his teenage years. A few people on the text line, pretty split about this. Someone says, uh, Unity are actual dogs for charging. Someone else says, boycott Unity. And then another texter says, Unity's charging per installation, not download. Yep, that's right. It's per installation. Downloads was just the analogy about songs. Hack. It's very important that we share our solidarity with First Nations people, standing firm in justice and standing side by side. On Triple J. Australia is an incredibly multicultural country. More than half of us were either born overseas ourselves or have at least one parent who was. But despite that, migrant communities are often left behind in major public conversations, just like the debate that we're having at the moment about the Indigenous voice to Parliament. And when there are language barriers involved as well, it often falls to young people to act as translators and educators for their families and their communities. And I want to know if this is you and you've been having to educate family members about the voice because there's been a lack of official communication. Text in on 0439757555 and let me know about your experience. Shalila Maduro has been speaking to some migrant community groups about how they're overcoming this lack of information. 
It's Friday night and 23-year-old Simran Kaur is prepping for dinner with her parents, Jagta and Darshan. Simran is super busy. Not only is she studying law and working as a paralegal, in her spare time she helps out at the Radical Centre Reform Lab at Sydney's Macquarie University. They're working towards getting information on the voice referendum out to multicultural communities so they can vote yes. The reason as to why our multicultural communities are really important to target is because a lot of the undecided is sitting in there. Simran reckons when it comes to big, important conversations like The Voice, migrant and multicultural groups are an afterthought in official communication. I think sometimes it just falls on youngsters like myself. Simran was doing all this work at the Reform Lab without realising that the real conversations needed to happen closer to home. I'm doing all this work outside, but if I look within the four walls of my house, there's definitely, I see it firsthand, there's, there's a gap in knowledge. Simran and her family moved to Australia from India more than 15 years ago. Before that, we didn't know anything uh, about the Australia, so what is the culture here? Simran's parents were completely in the dark about what a voice to parliament was all about. When it comes up, we couldn't understand like what is the what they are asking for and how this will impact on us or the other community. The thing is, they wanted to learn, but they found there wasn't any information in their native language Punjabi. So Simran stepped up. We've been having discussions around the table. You know, what is the voice? How do you think we should go from here? What are your perspectives? And those conversations helped her parents form the view that they too would support a voice to parliament. Her dad, Jagta, says it's the right thing to do. As a migrant, we have to give priority to those people to whom that land belongs to. So we have to respect them, basically. He reckons too many people, particularly from migrant and multicultural communities, are going into the vote without fully understanding it. We have to educate the society first before the polling. Simran doesn't think it's fair that that burden falls on young people like herself. I can do it with my parents and I can do it with my aunts and uncles, but I can't do it for the whole community as a whole. Australia's got a long history of preferring, in public policy, preferring not to know about cultural and other diversities. Andrew Yakubovich is a professor of sociology at the University of Technology in Sydney. He says that as a country, we're pretty bad at communicating with diverse communities. Policy tends to be devised with a focus on an assumed mainstream, um, and Australia really hasn't looked like that for a long time. Keep in mind, more than half of us were either born overseas ourselves or have at least one parent who was. But when it comes to official communication in other languages... Professor Yakubovich says we're seeing the same thing play out in the voice referendum. I think they, they haven't really taken on board how absolutely critical the ethnic community is going to be in moving the vote one way or another across the, across the line. Steve Coe is a member of the Chinese Australian Forum and he agrees it's a problem. I'm ashamed of it because there no one telling them what it's all about, literally. But Steve is at odds with his organisation because he's firmly in the no camp. It is something that is absolutely divisive when it's broken down into a race line. He's been holding forums for migrant groups in Sydney as part of the formal no campaign and says the voice isn't a priority for many communities. 
when you rank their life's priorities, it's not important. They've got other things to worry about, cost of living, you know, mortgage and running a business. Jimmy Lee is president of the Victorian chapter of the Chinese Community Council of Australia, and he takes a different view. It's up to the community to, to get uh, educated. People should seek reliable sources, not look at those anonymous posts. His organisation came out in support of The Voice last year, but in recent weeks, there's been pushback. Jimmy's been door-knocking in his community to support the Yes campaign and hearing firsthand what people think. Some have genuine concerns because all the, all this kind of fear and the misinformation on social media yeah, brings a lot of uh, fear into the people's minds. He says it's up to individuals to educate themselves on Australia's history and the unique place First Nations people have in it. Many people, they don't read the history. They don't listen to the music, uh, watch the art. It's easier to just read the social media. And Professor Andrew Jakobowicz says this is where young people step in. They have knowledges, they have insights, which can only come from either being born here or growing up here, that their parents could never have. Professor Jakobowicz, who's part of the Yes campaign, says supporters of the referendum should be taking note. That's why the interpersonal is so important. Right, that's why the um, the telling of the message, say, from young people to older people, is so important. Hack on Triple J. That's Shalila Madora reporting on the text line. Someone says, I'm Punjabi too, and my parents have no idea really what's going on. Too often, information for the Indian community is in a language that they, can under- that they can't understand as there are so many different languages. For someone who has made it his personal mission to have as many of these conversations about the referendum as possible is Amar Singh. He's this year's Australian Local Hero of the Year. He's the president and founder of the charity Turbans for Australia, and he's campaigning for the yes side for the referendum. He's also been driving all around the country talking to people about the referendum. Amar, thank you so much for being here on Hack. Thank you, Jo. Can you tell me about this trip that you've been on? It's been a journey. Uh, nation-building exercise for me. I mean, two months of my life on hold is a great investment into our nation because I see this as a historic moment in Australia to acknowledge our First Nations people and all the hurt we have caused as a nation, not me particularly or other migrants who recently arrived, but as a nation. We're Australians now. So there is are things wrong in our nation that we need to fix. And acknowledging the First Nations people, giving them a voice, why they need the voice? Because they are Indigenous people. They're not the mainstream. They are remote, regional. You know, they don't have the facility. So this is a very important step in the right direction, and I'm personally all for it. And two months of my life seeing the beautiful country that we're on, the big island, and meeting all of these incredible leaders across the states, it's been a God's, God's blessing. So have you found that people' opinions or even just knowledge and understanding of the voice changes depending on what parts of the country you're travelling to? Definitely. I think in, in the metropolitan cities, people are a lot aware because that's where most of our communities live and they have more social circles. But in regional towns, it's it's a little bit different. But yet, I have come in my 23,000 case, I didn't come across anybody who said, you know, you're doing the wrong thing, apart from a couple of comments by fake IDs on social media, but, you know, you don't pay attention to much of them. On the street, the vibe has been really strong. All of the multicultural communities, the faith-based communities, the places of worship I've visited, they've all acknowledged that we need more information, but yet they're on the right track. 
Yeah, I was going to ask about that. We just heard in Shalila's package that a lot of people have found that there's a real gap with communications on the referendum with multicultural communities. Is that kind of the experience that you found with people as well? Uh, true. There is a gap because a lot of people uh, prefer communication in their mother tongue, even though you know I've been here 25 years. I can relate to some of the topics before about young people uh, informing their community. When I started school here in f- age 15 in year 10, you know, I would learn new things and go home and tell, hey, do you know this about Australia? We got told this at school today. So it's a very important uh, role that young people have to play, especially in migrant household, to inform their parents about what's going on locally. Because sometimes they're just too busy in their day-to-day life, uh, earning the dollar and, and looking after the family. So I think on the street, the vibe is very good. And in my journey, I've come across so many people. I was lucky enough to be at the launch by the PM in Adelaide. And I could not see a dry eye in the room. So many Indigenous leaders were just, you know, had their ears, you know, eyes wet, thinking, oh, my God, we're here at the time when the date has been announced. This is a historic moment. People have spent their whole lifetime working on this, and I was just, you know, blessed to be part of that. Are you finding that a lot of people you're speaking to have already made up their mind about the referendum or are people still willing to listen and have a chat with you and are still kind of deliberating for themselves? Oh, definitely people are deliberating. I think right till the the end moment, until they they drop that ballot paper in the box, I think people, you can say there are some hard no's, that's fine, but there are plenty of people who are in between and we need to get them on board and say why they should be voting yes, because this is about international recognition for Australia. You know, a refugee said it the other day in a conversation that we accept people from all parts of the world to say, hey, come here, we welcome you. And yet the First Nations people aren't welcomed in their own land. So we've got to start those conversations right at home. And it's very important having those dinner time conversations with your friends and family, that why it's important. On the text line, someone says the Australian Electoral Commission has a huge cold offering about the referendum and voting. Someone else says, I feel like we should be providing impartial information to migrant communities instead of seeing it as a tool to sway the voter one way or another. That goes to, that is, I think, what you're talking about, the Australian Electoral Commission information there. And Dave from Brisbane says, it's not that there's a lack of information, there's plenty out there to look um, there's plenty out there, but people don't always want to look. The no campaigning using this to their advantage and they're giving off the impression that information is lacking when there's a far cry from the truth. I'm joined with Amar Singh and he's the Australian Local Hero of the Year. He's been driving all around the country campaigning for the referendum. Um, Amar, I'm just interested in what has surprised you the most that people have said about the voice to you. I think some migrant communities in, in, in the table talks with them have said, oh, people are saying at work that you're going to be paying extra rent because the Indigenous people are going to ask you for rent or take away your land. I mean, some of this misinformation is truly like a below the belt. I think we don't need this in 2023. And I've said this before. It was only 12 months ago. We were all hashtagging, we're in this together. And now all of a sudden there's us and them. Like, did we not learn anything from the once-in-a-lifetime pandemic and the bushfires and the floods and everything else we've had in the last 24 months? We should be better human beings. So acknowledge the past, what it is. It's just a voice, an advisory body to the government. I look at it, my community. We go to, you know, our charities or our places of worship to, hey, this is an issue affecting our community. And those guys will go in touch, get, get with their local uh, or state politicians and the government. Indigenous people don't have those facilities. They live in very remote and regional communities and they have this mistrust. So this is why they need the voice. But on the street, the vibe is very positive and all of the people that I've met, they, you know, the thumbs up and the, the people 
just Melbourne yesterday, there's a guy who uh, stopped at the fourth bite and waved and came across to shake my hand. I was in a one-way lane. He goes, thank you for doing these. So those are the pats on the back that really make me keep going. The debate around The Voice is has been at times quite racially charged and there have been some pretty ugly and racist comments coming out as part of this debate. Has that changed in any way the way you feel about Australia? Not really. Look, I have seen the worst of it. Why I started Turbans for Australia was being called a terrorist and say, go back home. Because people look at my face thinking, oh, just a new migrant. You know, when I speak, they hear the Aussie accent and go, oh, you can speak English. English just as the language, you know. So I started Turbans for Australia to overcome that for our Sikh community here. And we have been, you know, widely accepted now. People say g'day. Uh, you know, people shake your hand and go, look, thank you for doing what you do. But I think we shouldn't be sort of, you know, segregating our community and having this racist attitude because one thing I don't want people to know, oh, sorry, one thing I don't want people to think too much is Indigenous people should not have 100% consensus on the issue to get them a voice. They were 80% of their leadership saying, we need this voice. If we elect a new prime minister today, 80% will get us a new prime minister. So why have this onus on the Indigenous community to be 100%? You know, they have leaders who are backing the no and the yes and some who are saying it doesn't go far enough. Let's give them what they're asking for. And I'm very proud of our Indigenous leadership for coming up with this. It's taken years of hard work for them to be here today. So I feel blessed to be part of that journey. Amara, um, just wrapping up, but just lastly, where are you off to next? You said you've been driving 23,000 kilometres. What's next? So I'm in Melbourne till Sunday, then I get on the ship and go over to Tassie for a couple of days, come back into Geelong, then I go into regional New South Wales, then into Canberra, Wollongong, Sydney, back home by end of the month. But it's all looking great and I am looking to meet more and more communities. That was Amar Singh. He's this year's Australian Local Hero of the Year. He's a president and founder of the charity Turbans for Australia and he's campaigning for the yes side of the referendum. Thanks heaps for listening. I'll catch you tomorrow for the Friday Shake-Up. Bye. Hack on Triple Jack.